You're listening to Trucking Questions from the Audio Road with Kevin Rutherford. This is the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. You can ask questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, tax, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking. Here we go. Let's head on down the audio road. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. If you've got questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking, anything about trucking at all, or business at all, or money at all, even life, call me and talk about whatever you want. I'll do my best to get you an answer if I can't help you. Many times somebody else will come up with an answer for us. We're going to get to those calls in just a couple minutes. Uh, You know, I happened to look at the calendar this morning. It's February 20th. Do you know where your tax return is? Hopefully it's either on your tax preparer's desk or it's in your hands completed or it's already on the way to the IRS. I've, uh, I've done a handful of taxes just for some family and friends and, and already started e-filing to get them in early. If you are an owner operator, especially get this done early. The thing about being in business is that your tax situation can change drastically from year to year. If you're an employee and you're having taxes withheld and you typically get a refund, yeah, you're usually pretty motivated to get your tax return done early because you want to get paid. But even if you don't, no big deal. If you're an owner-operator, self-employed, paying your own taxes, it is a big deal. If you are new in your first three or four years, uh, you probably don't have a good feel for how taxes work yet, and I don't want you to get a nasty surprise. And the other thing I want you to do is I want you to talk to your tax preparer, ask questions. Don't be afraid to look stupid. It doesn't matter. You need to learn, and the only way to learn is to ask. And and most tax preparers, and I get this, they're busy people. It's a very, very difficult business to run because you get a year's worth of work crammed into a couple months at best, and it's just really tough. So they normally won't volunteer to spend time with you and explain your tax return. They'll just assume you know or you don't care, one of the two, and they're busy. You need to slow them down and say, look, I need to understand this. If we have to set an appointment, do whatever you have to do, but sit down and and at least get a basic understanding of your tax return. Now, if, if you want and you can get through on the show and you have some specific questions about a tax return, I can probably answer them for you and I'll help you with it. And I'm going to go over some of the things you need to be paying attention to and asking about. The first one, you absolutely have to pay attention to the 1099 amount you received from your carrier or carriers or brokers. Now, it is your responsibility to know how much money came into your business and how much money went out in deductible expenses. 
The IRS is clear about that. It's your responsibility, nobody else's. If the company doesn't issue you a 1099, the IRS is going to do nothing about it. it it's not a big deal. And you need to know. But you should know this anyway. You should have an accounting system that if you need to know how much money came in, you have it. Just because you get a 1099, don't assume it is correct. From the years that I was doing tax returns, we kept track of this. And on any given year, the number, the percentage of 1099s that were incorrect, and I had thousands of clients, the percentage was between 30 and 40% incorrect. You need to know. Now, here's the funny thing. Most of them, and I don't know why, but most of them were showing too much money. And well, I guess I do know why. There are some reasons. It's because carriers don't set up their accounting properly and they account for things like reimbursements that should be non-taxable. They count those as taxable items and that's incorrect, but nobody catches it. And what that means is the amount of money that's wrong on that 1099 is money you will pay tax on, but you never received. Now, it can be somewhat difficult and intimidating to, to try to figure out what's right, but you need to do it. There are a couple ways you could do this. You could sit down with your settlement department and have all your, your settlements with you in your 1099 and ask them clearly, which number would I add up every week from my settlement so that it matches my 1099? And there should be a number. And, and if there is a number and you know which one it is, this should only take you maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Now, if it's wrong, now we got to start tracking it down, but get them to help you because this would be their mistake. It's their settlement, their 1099. If it doesn't match and they can't show you the number, that's on them. And you need to put it on them and get them to help you fix this. The other option is figure it out yourself. And then there's a third. If you are a Profit Gages member, we'll do it for you. It's part of the service that we offer. We'll help you match that 1099 amount and make sure you don't pay too much tax. On the other hand, I've had some cases where the, the 1099 was wrong the other way by a huge amount because the carrier, for whatever stupid reason, decided not to put the fuel surcharge amount on the 1099 and it absolutely needs to be there. That is income. And the problem was the client, the owner operator was using, they were doing everything they thought they should be doing. They were using a, a tax preparer who understood the industry, who is on some of the radio shows on this channel and I can't believe this didn't get caught. It went on for four years and they didn't pay tax on over a hundred thousand dollars. Now you might say, Oh, great. They got, we don't know that they're going to get away with it. If they get audited, they will have to pay all of the tax back and all of the interest and all of the penalties. Now here's the really bad news. 
you may have heard that you can't be audited after three years. And that's three years from the date you file the return or three years from the date you pay the tax in full. So if you have to go on a payment plan or something like that, you can be audited from the time you make your final payment. They still have three more years, but that's not the whole story. That's only if they believe you cheated on expenses. If they can prove you failed to report income, which is exactly the case here, there is no statute of limitations. They can audit you 20 years from now if they can go back and say, hey, look, we just happened to figure out that they didn't report all their income. 20 years with the three or four years worth of interest and penalties can wipe you out. So don't think that, oh, my 1099 wasn't enough and I'm going to get away with this. In an audit, it will take them minutes to catch that. And you don't want to be stuck with interest and penalties. I, I don't know what to say about using somebody who, you know, is in the industry and, and does a lot of owner operators and yet didn't catch this for four years. I, I, I'm not exaggerating. And I, I don't do a lot of audits or anything like that. I do a lot of taxes and I get this, but it didn't take me more than 10 minutes to figure out what the problem was. As soon as the client showed me the tax return, I said, something is clearly wrong. For the amount of revenue that's here, the expenses don't make any sense. And, and I can't believe that all the expenses are wrong. So I'm pretty sure the revenue is wrong. And at 10 minutes, we had it figured out, which means 10 minutes in an audit and you're going to be screwed. You've got to make sure that number is correct. You should know that it's correct anyway, because you should have a good accounting system. If you need help with this, though, get it. Uh, the other thing I want you to be aware of and asking about is depreciation. There are a thousand different variations on how we can do depreciation. Straight line, double declining balance, 150 declining balance. Um, half-year convention, quarter-year convention. We can use bonus depreciation. We can use Section 179 deduction and all kinds of crazy amounts. And we could use all of those things together. Very, very confusing issue. And it has a huge impact on your tax return. If you are in your third year of being an owner-operator and you've been taking depreciation, be prepared for a big jump in your tax return this year. You need to be asking about that. If you're in a lease purchase, you need to be asking how they're going to handle depreciation, if they're going to. And also you need to talk to them about quarterly estimates so that you can start making these payments and setting money aside every week. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. We're going to get to some phone calls. Let's get started in Arizona. Glenn, welcome to the program. Uh, hey, Kevin. Thanks for taking my call. I've got a tax question for you. Okay, shoot. Okay, let me... Uh, okay, this is what is going on. I got married to my ex-wife in 2008, and I just found out last year that in 2007, she had a car we possessed, and uh, apparently the finance company wrote it off in the tax year 2012, so I've been getting notices from the IRS saying that uh, we owe $2,500 extra tax for the year 2012. And my question for you is, can I go back and amend that return and file separately, or is there anything else I can do uh, as far as that's concerned? Um, you can't go back and amend it because just like the IRS can only audit us for three years, you can only amend for three years and we're way past that. So, um, what you can do, there is a form and I believe it's 8379. Um, uh, that might be it. What you want to search for the term that they use is called injured or innocent spouse tax relief. And this is a form that's used for exactly the kind of thing you're talking about. Because many times after we get married, tax problems pop up from years ago that really had nothing whatsoever to do with us. But now it ends up on our tax return or our credit or whatever, because now we're married. So There is a form that you can go back and say, hey, wait a minute. When this originally happened, we weren't married. This has nothing to do with me. And now we're not married again. So it certainly doesn't have anything to do with me. So I think it's 8379. But if you search for injured spouse IRS or injured spouse tax or uh, you'll get the hits and you can kind of go through it, maybe figure it out on your own or. Um, you could look for a, I, when it comes to tax issues, I'd like to look for what's called an EA that stands for enrolled agent. Um, very different from a CPA. Most people always think of CPA when they think of taxes, but in reality, CPAs aren't trained all that well to do taxes. They're trained to do accounting and accounting for big companies. And they get a little bit of tax thrown in. Now, many CPAs go on to study more tax, but the, the designation EA, enrolled agent, is specifically taxed. The, the test you, you have to take with the IRS, you have to be certified by the IRS. They don't work for the IRS. They work for themselves, but they're certified by the IRS. And the, the test you have to take is very, very tax intensive. So if you find a local EA they could knock this out for you probably in, in an hour, and I don't think they'd have to charge you much. Okay. Uh, do you know if I would have to do that every year? It's just like uh, completely eliminated, so I wouldn't have to deal with it again. It should, should be a one-time thing, and then you should be done. Okay, great. All right, thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Connecticut. John, welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call. What's on your mind today? Oh, I have a really oddball question. Um, a friend of mine 
she just took a job uh, doing drive-away RVs, uh, you know, like delivering them to the dealerships. Okay. And part of her contract, she's an independent contractor, and, you know, they, they pay her as such. And part of the contract states that they reimburse her uh, for fuel. I, I, actually, I shouldn't say that. Not reimbursed. Part of her her wages or part of the what she earns per mile also covers the fuel. And I asked her the question of who covers the tax on the fuel. And she had no idea what I was talking about. And I was wondering if you knew anything about that industry at all. Uh, yeah, I do. And the first thing we might be able to just really simplify this is, do you know what size of RVs she's delivering? Anything that you can actually drive. She doesn't pull like trailers or anything like that. It, it's specifically drive away. So any size, she has a, 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 a class A license so she can drive anything. Okay, so this could get a little weird because, and I would even have to think about this for a minute. She is only driving motor homes then. She's not pulling any kind of trailers or fifth wheels, right? Correct. The Now, once, once an RV is bought, then there is no fuel tax. It's a recreational right. vehicle, commercial vehicle. But I guess under delivery, it would be considered a commercial vehicle. That would right. be the first thing that could trigger fuel tax. But the second thing is it has to have a gross vehicle weight of over 26,000 pounds. So, ah. you know, when we get up into the class A, you know, the diesel pushers and that kind of stuff, um, uh -huh. some of those could be big enough that they might have to pay fuel tax for the delivery um, but anything under 26,000 pounds, there is no fuel tax filing, even if it's commercial. Really? Yeah. 26,000 pounds is the threshold. So even, you know, if you run around with a hot shot, totally commercial, and, and you can manage to keep your weight under 26,000 pounds, you stay away from a lot of things, logbooks, fuel tax, all kinds of stuff, uh, heavy vehicle use tax. All of those things kind of kick in at that 26,000 pound level. And 26,000 pounds means gross vehicle weight rating. It doesn't mean what the vehicle weighs at any given time. It's what the, ve the vehicle is legally licensed to be able to weigh. So just right, because right. you're running around in a, you know, a, a, a hot shot and you're under 26,000 pounds empty, you are capable of hauling more than that. that. And that means you have to pay fuel tax all the time. But if you're registered or the vehicle isn't capable of weighing that much, and that's the whole unit, everything combined, then there is no fuel tax. So I, here's the other thing, though. Um, she can't pay fuel tax because I don't think there's any way for her to have an IFTA account. She doesn't own any of these vehicles. So this is such a goofy setup that she will never be held responsible. She doesn't have the authority. She doesn't have the IFTA accounts and she couldn't really get them. Um, you know, a, a state agency might come in and find the company for setting something up like this. But okay. and 
there might even be when you ask me, do I know that industry? I know a little bit about it. There might even be some sort of an exception on delivering these RVs and fuel tax. I'm not really sure. But the, the company that has the authority and has the contract is the one that would be responsible for fuel tax, not her. And oh. by the way, the the illegal part here is that she's not an independent contractor. I know they're so treating she, her that way, but that's incorrect. She should not be treated as an, an she's an employee. Yes, she should be. Yeah. <laughs> I think if I tell her that it'll be the trigger that she'll pull and she'll end up quitting because she's not real happy with the business. Well, does it, she it, does she understand what's going to happen to her tax wise working this way? Uh, yeah. And I, I've been very slowly trying to ease her into the fact of, of, you know, how it works now. If she is classified as an independent contractor uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't even think about her actually being an employee. But I guess when when you say it out loud, I knew better. She is an employee, even though yeah, they're paying her by the mile. It doesn't matter. She is. No, that doesn't matter. Let me give you the you know, the this has been such a hotly contested issue over the years. But it, the IRS had this goofy 21 question test to determine if you were an independent contractor or not. But what ultimately happened was about 19 of the questions always get ignored. There are things like, um, does the company control your schedule? Are you required to wear a uniform? Well, those things have all been thrown out. At many, many companies require real independent contractors to wear a uniform. I mean, I, I was contracted to FedEx for years I was a right. corporation. I had my own employees. I, I had all my own equipment. I was clearly contracting with them, but I was required to wear a uniform. And, and one of the reasons that, you know, the company said, look, it's our image. Um, we can't send people up to knock on doors and jeans and a T-shirt. So that one got thrown away. Same thing with the schedules. The companies, when they fought the IRS, they said, wait a minute. It's the customer that's demanding we have somebody there at this time. So that one got thrown out. And over time, most of the 19 questions got ignored. The two that seemed to be the issue were, does the person own the equipment required to do the job? And in this case, she clearly doesn't. And is there a profit motive other than salary? And clearly there isn't. She's not an independent contractor. And that's where the real problem starts. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. We're going to get right back to the calls. We're off to Arizona. Rusty, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Kevin. I was, uh, I'm trying to file my taxes here with uh, TurboTax, and the problem I'm running into is I've got a either an unscrupulous broker or a direct customer. I'm not sure which way, but I can't get an EIN number out of them. So, And TurboTax is telling me that I have to send them a certified letter uh, trying right. to get that. Hold on. If a customer pays you, right, I'm assuming we're talking about a broker that paid you money, why do we need their EIN? Tax is requiring. On what form? What form are you trying to fill out? I don't honestly know. It's just the, the forms that you have to fit the, uh, about the mm-hmm. customer that where you got the money. Okay, so like in in a tax return, we can fill out kind of a, a 1099 of sorts when we get a 1099 from another company, but we don't have to. You could skip all of those forms. You could take all of the money you received from all of your customers and just stick it on the Schedule C as your revenue. Okay. Would yeah, you you yeah, you don't need their EIN at all. Okay. And then what do I do with a uh, broker who wrote me a check on uh, real late December and I didn't get it and get it deposited till January? How do I handle that? Because my income, I actually received it in 15 and they're showing it on the 1099 in 14. Just to keep things simple, honestly, if I were you, I would report it in 14. You're not required to. We are not required to show income. You are what's considered a cash basis taxpayer. And when you're on cash basis, you are not required to show income until you physically have possession of it, meaning that the the physical check is in your hand. We don't have to necessarily wait for it to clear the bank, but we could even push it that far if we wanted to. The, The problem, how much are we talking about? Uh, six different brokers at probably $4,000. So on $4,000, that's roughly going to add about 1200 to your tax bill. If it were me, I would well, no, just it's a re- refund. What do you mean? It's okay. a refund. Well, it's a, it's a refund. I, I, I haven't paid taxes in like six years because of how many kids I have and deductions. Hold on. Stop right there. Because something is clearly wrong. I don't care if you have 87 kids and you give a million dollars a year to charity and you have $10,000 in mortgage interest. You still, if that company, if your company shows a profit, I don't care how many personal deductions you have, there is tax owed. I mean, if you have a profit of more than $400 on the business, there is self-employment tax owed. Now, once in a while, it's possible to kind of wipe out some of that with an earned income credit, but six years, either you are not running a very profitable business or your tax returns are a mess, one of the two. I don't know. That's just what it's been. I mean, we were with H&R Block, and then we've been to several other tax repairs over the six years, and that's what... I've only been an owner operator for now the taxable two years. 
So, okay. But so there's the difference. When you told me six, I, I thought we were sick right. owner operators the whole time, two years wow. with depreciation, then it is possible to get your profit down to the point where you wouldn't pay tax. You are the exact person I was talking about at the open that if you're in your third year, watch out because if you're still showing a loss and there's no tax in your third year, then I'm going to go back to my original statement. Either you're just not making any money or the tax return is being done wrong. Look, I've done thousands, tens of thousands of tax returns for owner operators. You pay tax. Yeah, just, I thought that after all of our expenses was almost a little over fifteen thousand dollars this last year because we bought a the truck and a trailer, so that was our, our net profit. Well, then but there should there, be. Tax. Well, there's taxes due, but there's earned income tax credits of twenty six hundred per child, so that's five grand in tax credits. And if you're paying fifteen percent tax on fifteen thousand dollars, what is that like three thousand dollars? Yeah, I, I would be very, very careful. And here's the other thing. I, well, let, let's not go there. I would just be very, very careful that you've got this done right. Let's go back to my um, how we got off track on this. Um, there was a point I was trying to make, and then you jumped in and said it's a refund. Sorry. What was I? What were we I'm talking about? That the uh, money was taxable, the $1,200. Yes. Right. So on this money that, you know, you you technically received in 15, but they paid in 14. If if this was all profit, you would only end up paying about twelve hundred. And I would have said for twelve hundred bucks, just report it this year because trying to get this corrected and then remembering it next year, it just leads to a disaster. So for 1200 bucks, I'd rather just pay it. But for you, you're telling me there's not going to be any tax anyway. Well, hell, report it all this year then. Okay. And then that's less you have to report next year when you hopefully by then you get profitable and, and you're going to owe tax. So they kind of did you a favor, in my opinion, report it this year when you're not paying any tax anyway. Let's go to uh, Virginia. Steve, welcome to the program. Uh, good day, Kevin. Um, got a couple quick questions for you uh, about using the Jake brake for the Detroit. Uh, is there any damage to the engine or harm to the engine using the Jake brake? None whatsoever. Um, and I know there's a lot of misconceptions about what Jake brakes do and you know, I've heard people say, oh, it kills your fuel economy. And all that is absolutely false. The only way to activate the Jake brake is to have your foot completely off the throttle. If your foot's off the throttle on an electronic engine, there's no fuel going to the cylinder. So we can't be using any fuel. What confuses people is we talk about turbo boost correlating to fuel economy. There's one exception to that. When the Jake brake is on, you're going to see boost because we're opening the exhaust valves, but you're not using any fuel because none is going to the cylinder. The only thing that wears out, we're not doing damage to anything. Um, the Jake brake over time will wear out and you can rebuild them, but that's what they're there for. They're there to use and it is a, a safe, efficient way of slowing down the vehicle, and it actually saves on some brakes. So 
yeah, I, I use it a lot. Well, someone mentioned to me that it's not good to use it in a Detroit at a high RPM or it may sh- I hear people talking about shaking the motor apart. I mean, there's any, anything to that or. Well, let, let's talk about what they mean by high RPM. 2,000 RPM isn't going to hurt anything. Are we talking about more than that? Then, no, like 1,500, 1,600. Oh, like, that, that engine could sit there with the Jake brake on at 1,600 RPMs from now till eternity, and it's not going to hurt anything. It could do it up no. to about two, actually probably about 2,200 if we really wanted to push it. And if you were to exceed that for short periods of time, I don't recommend it, but even that wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, so that that's just incorrect. Using the Jake brake really doesn't hurt anything. Now, just to throw this out there, because somebody will send it to me, we want to be careful about using a Jake brake in bad weather because we're only applying braking pressure to one set of axles. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're applying a, a slowing down force to the drive axles, but nothing else. So you can, you know, the axles might kick out a little bit. So just be careful using it in bad weather, but any other time they're there to use, they work and you're not going to hurt anything. If we keep it under 2000 RPM. Uh, is that something that should be adjusted when I get the overhead set or uh, when you say, where's that, what, where's that on the Jake break? Uh, you know, there are different styles. Well, there aren't different styles of Jake brake. Jake is a very specific Jacob's engine brake is what it is. Um, but there are different engine manufacturers have some different configurations. It's not a bad idea. If you're doing an overhead, they should be inspecting all the parts. But I, I can tell you that every Detroit I've ever owned, um, I've taken them all well past a million miles and I've never touched the Jake brakes. Okay. I got one quick text question for you. I'm a, a new owner operator, at least to a company I started back in July. And I have that question for just a second. I'm going to get to a break and then I'll come back and we'll tackle that one. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment, so I'm going to get to the calls. But before I do, I want to make one more comment about the Jake brake. The whole point of the Jake brake is, is to help hold the vehicle back, and, and especially on a long downhill grade. And the Jake brake is far more effective at high RPM than low RPM. Jake brake does almost nothing at 1300 RPM or 1400, but 
let it loose at about 1800 and it has tremendous braking power and you're not hurting anything at all. They're designed to work that way. Let's go to, uh, oh no, I'm going to go back to Steve in Virginia. Steve, go ahead. Next question. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I just have one more question. I'm a new owner operator, lease to a company. I hired an accountant to do my bookkeeping and she's doing my IFTA for me. And, uh, this, I feel like I'm at a mercy because I totally don't understand everything like I like to. And I hear conflicting stories from other people about how things should be done. But um, I've got an S-Corp and I basically give her my receipts every month and my checking account statement for the business. And she does a profit and loss for me. But I'm just I don't I don't have a payroll set up. I'm just taking basically taking a draw every month. I'm paying myself monthly um, and you know, I'm not withholding any taxes at this time. Uh, this is this is your first year? Yeah, my first year, right. Why are you an S-Corp? Well, she recommended that. I guess I'll I tell you why. It, and, and I can't believe that accountants recommend S-Corps and then don't set up payroll. I mean, you should clearly be on payroll and you should be drawing a check, even if it's just once a month as a salary. But to, to go all year with an S-Corp, not do payroll tax. And I know there's a way to make it up at the end of the year, but I think it's a lousy way to run it. And I just think it's ridiculous to put somebody in an S-Corp and then not do it right. So I'm not saying she's a bad accountant or a bad tax preparer. I'm just wondering why. It makes me a little suspect. I, here's what I would recommend. And so few people do this because it's hard work and they'd rather not bother. And that's why they end up, you know, being ignorant about taxes. And I can, I can hear in your voice, you don't want to be ignorant. You want to understand this. And I agree. I would, I would sit down. Um, do you have a, are you married? No, I'm divorced. Okay. So that makes it a little easier because it's just you. I would take some time and sit down and think through all of your questions about taxes. And then I would sit down with her and I would either have a recorder with me or if you're taking notes, I would take notes. I would get all the answers and then I would go get a second opinion. And if you get really conflicting opinions, then I would actually go get a third opinion. I would take those same questions to another tax preparer and say, one tax preparer told me this, one told me this, what's your answer? And believe it or not, you might get three. This is the problem with our tax system. It is so overly complicated that if we put five tax preparers and five IRS agents in a room, we end up with 15 opinions. Now do the math. We only have 10 people, but we somehow end up with 15 opinions because this stuff is so freaking complicated and the IRS is very vague in the, in their 700,000 pages of tax documents or however many we have, the number so big, I can't even keep it straight anymore. It's so complicated that everybody's just kind of flying by what they think is right, including myself. You know, you hear me answer all kinds of tax questions and I'm very sure of my answers. But that's only based on my interpretation of the code. So there are tons of people who disagree with me. All I can tell my clients is, here's the research I've done. Here's the conclusion I've come to. And if something ever happens, I'll stand next to you and say, this is why I did it. Okay, well, I appreciate your advice and enjoy the show. Uh, Thank you for the call. And this is exactly why we need a fair tax.
because anybody who tells you this is absolutely how it works, they're overconfident or they're lying because uh, I'm not real confident on a lot of issues. I'm confident that I've done the work. I know what the answer is, but I've also been telling you, we started a tax service up and I decided I don't have time to stay on top of all these issues the way I should. And I don't feel right doing tax returns anymore. So we partnered with a company, a very high level accounting and tax firm, and I trust that they do the work. But I also about once a week, sit down with them and say, what are the issues we're seeing? How are you going to handle them? Show me the documentation so that I can interpret it and see if I'm comfortable with it. And, and as, a ta- as, as a business owner, you've got to do the same thing. Most people won't. Let's, uh, let's go to South Dakota. Bo, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, Kevin. Good. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, I'll jump right into it. Look, uh, one thing that's a, a little bit upsetting is this uh, issue that we're having with the 12-7. I'm out there, and I'm, I'm looking for a truck now, okay? And, right. uh, man, it's really just, you know, uh, disheartening, you know, that uh, I, I can't. I, it's, it's almost like it's, I can't even make that. Uh, it's not even going to be a, uh, an option for me now because I don't want to have to deal with all the uh, back-ordered parts. Why don't we have somebody uh, like an aftermarket manufacturing company uh, meeting the demands? Or there's obviously going to be them. You know that, what I'm saying? That, that is a good question. I was going to talk about this the other day. I was thinking the same thing. Here is the beauty of a free market system. Uh, and I'm a true free market capitalist. When there is a need somebody will eventually step in and fill it. But depending on how big the need is or how complicated the task is, it might take a while. Now, the need is really just now starting to show up. You know, a year ago, we were starting to complain about some injectors and some other things, but it didn't seem like a real big deal. Then all of a sudden we had these 12 sevens that are getting horrible fuel economy and nobody can figure out why. So we start digging into it. Jeff Zarley kind of, you know, puts enough work into it that he finally figures out, hey, it looks like we're getting mismatched parts here because everything's so short. So really, I mean, this has just been within the last couple of months for me that I'm seeing this really is or could become a big problem. Now I'm hoping somebody out there with the resources, somebody who's already kind of in this business steps in and says, Hey, look, there is a huge demand for good parts. Let's do what we can fill it. In the meantime, I, I, I would have two options. One only work with a 12 seven. If I can absolutely verify that I've got all the right parts and they're good, or I'd probably be building a six NZ because I don't think there's quite as much demand for those right now. All right, yeah, all right, so maybe that's what I'll be, I'll be looking for. So my other question is I have, I have two other questions here, all right? So I wanted to ask you the, uh, the, about the price and uh, insulation about the, uh, the start modulators and the uh, OPS, EcoPure. Now, maybe it's, uh, maybe the OPS, I could just take that to, to a shop, but I was wondering, can we do that by ourselves, or if we do have to take it to a shop, how much should we be paying for the insulation of that? All good questions. If you uh, give me 
give me the most difficult mechanical task you've done on your own truck. Ah, uh, man, I haven't bought one yet, Kevin. I'm, I'm almost okay. there. <laughs> How about, are you pretty mechanical though? Have you ever worked yep. on cars or motorcycles or boats? Have you yep. ever, have you ever replaced a clutch in a car? I have uh, in a little Honda Civic. It was okay. Man, I tell you what. Yeah, yeah, but the the OPS is less mechanical than that. Sure. So, and they have good instructions, and they have great technical support, and they have good install kits. So, if you can change a clutch in a car, you can install the OPS. Pretty pretty straightforward, and there's not too many things that can really go wrong. How they are you? And, and they, let's they just. I don't mean to cut you off, I, I, but they seem about eight hundred dollar mark, right? Uh, about the OPS is that, is that fair to say? You know, they they run a bunch of specials, call them, but usually there's a startup package that you can get for under eight hundred that even includes all the supplies you need for almost a year, like filters and sample kits and that kind of stuff. So. Sure. You know, that one usually is under a thousand bucks, everything in, even if you're having it installed someplace. Now, I've seen I've seen shops that hit people up for like seven or eight hours to put this thing in and they should right. be shot for doing it because that's insane. Um, sure. The start module. How good are you with electrical stuff? Yeah, I understand it. Uh, in my former life, you know, I, I worked as a uh, you know, with electrician, anyways. But uh, yeah, I, I I understand, you know, amperage and all that, uh, all that other stuff. Then the start module isn't a real big deal either. It's just a matter of running some cables and make sure you have all the cables going to the right things. Because what we do is we isolate the start module from everything except the starter. We wire it directly to the starter. Then we do wire it to the other batteries, but the the it can only flow in one direction from the batteries to the start module. Uh, the unit itself is right around a thousand bucks, and again, it sounds like something you could do yourself. Uh, I wish I had more time, but the clock says I got to get out of here. So we will see you back here next time. Thanks for joining me. Be safe. Be profitable. Do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Thanks for tuning in to the Audio Road. If you have any questions, give us a call at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Check out the website at letstruck.com and find us on facebook.com slash letstruck.